Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege you give us of coming together and studying your word, your counsel in light of modern science. We pray that you'd be with us, that you'd guide us, and that you'd help us learn things that are of practical import to share with others. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for those of you who uh, either were not here yesterday or who need a reminder, in my first presentation, we looked at the parallels between the days of King Ahab and our time today. And although we didn't make the connection, the Israel of Ahab looked an awful lot like the church of Laodicea, didn't it? As we looked at some of the archaeological evidence of Ahab's day, they were rich and increased with goods. Israel of Ahab, uh, we found yesterday, was lukewarm. They were very tolerant. They allowed all elements to coexist, at least until things got difficult, and then the righteous were martyred by Jezebel. In the context of all of this, we want to look at today's focus on creation science and how it relates, especially to the three angels' messages and to geology. Here's what Ellen White wrote in the fourth volume of the Bible Commentary, page 1184. In this time of well-nigh universal apostasy, God calls upon his messengers to do what? To proclaim his law in the spirit and power of Elias. As John the Baptist, in preparing a people for Christ's first advent, called their attention to the Ten Commandments, so we are to give with no uncertain sound the message, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. With the earnestness that characterized Elijah the prophet and John the Baptist, we are to strive to prepare the way for Christ's second advent. Do you see the connections here? So the commandments are mentioned, John the Baptist, Elijah, and at the heart of those commandments is the call to worship God as what? The creator, the creator. So that is indeed the rationale for worship in the first angel's message, isn't it? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and do what? Worship him that made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. But, you know, here we are at Weimar, and I'd be negligent not to mention a couple of other aspects of the Elijah message that I believe directly relate to creation science that we've often not talked about in many Adventist circles, even in many circles where Adventist young adults who are focused on God's mission are gathered. You see, the work of Elijah was not only a stern expositional message, which, as we've just seen, really echoed the three angels' messages. His work also included some other elements. He invested his en energies in educational reform. Are you aware of that about Elijah? And Elijah's work included a clear health message with a call to God-ordained methods of healing. Do these connections all come to your mind when you think of the work of Elijah? Let's just look uh, very briefly here at a couple of these because it actually feeds into what we're looking at in these two presentations today. The schools of the prophets, I'm reading from Prophets and Kings, pages 224 and on. The schools of the prophets established by Samuel had fallen into decay during the years of Israel's apostasy. Elijah reestablished these schools, making provision for young men to gain an education that would lead them to magnify the law and make it honorable. Especially did he instruct them concerning their high privilege of loyally maintaining their allegiance to the God of heaven. He also impressed upon their minds the importance of simplicity letting simplicity mark every feature of their education. Aren't you just grateful to be in a more simple setting where we don't even have these high-powered air conditioners? <laughs> well, you may not be all that thankful for that. But, and I, I believe here at Weimar we still need to make progress in simplicity. But only in this way, we're told, could they receive the mold of heaven and go forth in the ways of the Lord. And then here's some of this application of simple methods. You know, the simplest method of education is apprenticeship, is discipleship, isn't it? I mean, you don't need a school, you don't need buildings. And Ellen White highlights that in speaking about the work of Elijah. 
This is from Gospel Workers, page 101 and 102. Let the older workers be educators, keeping themselves under the discipline of God. Let the young men feel it a privilege to study under older workers and let them carry every burden that their youth and experience will allow. Thus, Elijah educated the youth of Israel in the schools of the prophets, and young men today are to have a similar training. It is not possible to advise in every particular the part that the youth should act, but they should be faithfully instructed by the older workers and taught to look ever to him who is the author and finisher of our faith. So this model of a simple education, discipleship, apprenticeship, was Elijah's model, was God's model, was Jesus' model, right? He's calling our schools to return to that where the older workers are educators, they're faithful to God's principles, and the younger students are involved actually in evangelistic ministry. And I know there are many places where this is trying to be done, but that's one of our emphasis here, emphases here at Weimar in the area of even health education. As we're teaching health classes, we're getting the students involved in health evangelism. So we read about Elijah in the schools of the prophets in some of his last activities. He's visiting these schools just prior to his being taken to heaven in 2 Kings 2. But do you know what was happening in 2 Kings 1 just before that? Another aspect of Elijah's ministry. And I'll bring this all together as far as uh, creation science in just a moment. What? Mentoring? It's actually health ministry. It says after Ahab's reign, Moab rebelled against Israel. And then Ahab's son, Ahaziah, comes to the throne. And it says of him that he fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria, and he was sick. So here's someone in need of health ministry, isn't there? And many of you know the story. It says, Ahaziah sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I should recover of this disease. Actually, the spirit of prophecy has a lot to say about this, but look at the simple message that God gives through Elijah. God tells Elijah to arise, go meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, that's Ahaziah, and say unto them, is it not because there is not a God in Israel that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not come down from this bed on which thou art gone up, but you will surely die. And Elijah departed. So Ellen White actually, as she speaks about this in some detail, uh, you could read the whole section in Councils on Health. It's taken from a article that appeared elsewhere, page 454 and onward. She's especially warning there against spiritualistic methods of healing. And I ask you this question, are there dangers that Adventists today will gravitate to those methods? Uh, we're not going to talk about this in any detail, but there really is. Ellen White emphasized a health ministry that was to be both rational and natural. And for some reason in the Adventist church, we have tended to polarize into people that believe they're following rational methods and others that believe they are following natural methods. The ones that are following natural methods often bring all kinds of things in that are not God-approved, but that's another subject. But here's the application that's especially relevant for us. Listen to this in Councils on Health, page 454. God has placed it in our power to obtain a knowledge of the laws of health. He's made it a duty to preserve our physical powers in the best possible condition that we may render to him acceptable service. Those who refuse to improve the light and knowledge that have been mercifully placed within their reach are rejecting one of the means which God has granted them to promote spiritual as well as physical life. They are placing themselves where they will be exposed to the delusions of Satan. It's interesting. She makes a connection here between not following God's health principles and being exposed to the delusions of Satan. It's very interesting. But then there's another application that Councils in Health goes on to address. And I'm sharing this here because I have a, a great concern. As we speak about creation science or science in general, I've noticed something. And that is that many Adventist young people somehow think that spending time studying science is taking away from the important work of preaching the gospel. I've met many Adventist young people who've abandoned 
careers in scientific lines, whether it's in health ministry or other areas, because they sense the urgency of Christ soon coming. They have to be distributing literature. This is wonderful. This is great. I'm glad we're training Cole Porters. I'm glad many of you have that vision. They have to be out there preaching the message, but they don't realize this very important principle that we're going to see here. You see, medical work is to exist to the end of time. Elijah's ministry demonstrated it. I'm not going to look at all kinds of statements we could, but just one brief one here that relates to even health institutions. When the Lord shall bid us make no further effort to build meeting houses and establish schools, sanitariums, and publishing institutions, it will be time for us to fold our hands and let the Lord close up the work. But now is our opportunity to show our zeal for God and our love for humanity. Ellen White, even in sensing the imminence of Christ's return in her day, in six testimonies here, page 440, she's saying, look it, if you're thinking there's not time even to build new institutions, you're missing the whole point. Let alone get training to staff those institutions. Councils on Health, page 554. Again, that context with Ahaziah. Now is our time to make decided efforts to awaken the people who've never yet been warned. Much thought and labor is given to the printed page. This is well. So is it bad to be distributing literature? Is it bad to be involved in poverty? No, this is one of the Lord's ordained means of hastening his coming. But she says, this is well, but if more efforts were given to sending forth the living missionary to preach the truth, many more souls would be aroused and won to the truth. While Jesus ministers in the true sanctuary above, he is through his Holy Spirit working through his earthly messengers. These messengers will accomplish more than the printed page if they go forth in the spirit and power of Christ. You say, well, we know that. That's why we're out there. We want to preach. We want to hold meetings. But she doesn't stop with this. She says, it's well in presenting the truth to unbelievers first to present some subjects upon which they'll agree with us. The principles of health and temperance, those things appeal to their judgment. We can from these subjects lead them on to understand the binding claims of the fourth commandment. When the people see the value of instruction given regarding healthful living, it gives them confidence to believe that the teachers of these principles have the truth in other lines. You see, health ministry is part of the closing work of the third angel's message. It was part of Elijah's work. It's to be part of our work today. And how does this all relate to creation science? We're talking about education. We're talking about health ministry. And we're saying this is in the backdrop of Elijah's work that had special relevance to us today. And we see this parallel in Ahab's day as we looked at it yesterday, where there's this postmodern thinking, right? Postmodernism, anything goes, we've got to tolerate, we've got to be loving, we've got to keep united in the church, we can't say anything that, that uh, bothers anyone. Look what. Ellen White says, in this context, the presenting of Bible principles by an intelligent physician will have great weight with many people. There's efficiency and power with one who can combine in his or her influence the work of a physician and of a gospel minister. His work commends itself to the good judgment of the people. More than ever today, we're in a culture that values science, right? And so we're looking at an area of science where the secular mind says, creation science, it's a bunch of nonsense. The scientists, quote scientists, tell us that things evolved over millions and millions of years. And one of the ways I believe that God is giving credibility, wanting to give credibility to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is through people who are trained in science, who are ministering with their science, both in the area of health ministry, for example, but also giving sound science when it comes to creation science. So this is really a plea. Maybe it shouldn't be given to you because you're here today. But really, to the GYCs and the Weimar students and the Washita Hills folks and, and the campus ministries, because somehow it's easy to lose this perspective that health ministry is this critical component of end-time ministry. And so I just want to commend you uh, for having this vision to equip yourselves with more scientific insight. 
Okay, so whether you think it was an important digression or not, I think it's extremely important in the marketplace in which we deal with. Now, since this is being recorded, we can't have too much interchange, but uh, I know some of you are, are getting anxious to add your enthusiastic endorsement, at least I hope, to what we're talking And I see a head nodding. Okay, so we appreciate your uh, raise of hand and your nodding head. So we want to go back with that perspective now because I've been trying to encourage you, each one of you, to take some personal advocacy of creation science. Whether it's one-on-one -on -one with people, which is powerful, but also in public ministry. And uh, I'd like to say it this way. You can have a significant impact just by being educated about the subjects regardless of what credentials you have. I want to say that first. Okay? So regardless of what your background is, I'm not trying to tell you you've got to go and get your PhD in paleontology so you can speak with authority. This is why most people never share publicly. Are you aware of that? They feel they're not qualified. One of the people that uh, I met some years ago, one of the most educated people I had met up to that point in the area of nutrition, had a doctorate, and uh, this individual felt um, uncomfortable doing anything in public because they realized how much they still didn't know. Well, this is a good thing to realize your limitations, but it's not a good thing to withhold from sharing just because you're limited. And like I told you yesterday, I wouldn't be sharing today if I felt I had to master all these uh, nuances of creation science in order to share anything of value. So we're back now to geology with that foundation. We're not going to do any more philosophical stuff in the next two hours. So if that's a relief to you, um, good. If you're sad about that, uh, my apologies. But our thesis yesterday was that plenty of evidence in geology argues for short ages since creation week. And we want to pick up on this theme because it's a critical one. And what I told you yesterday is the geologists often want to cite these radiometric clocks. And we looked a little bit at carbon-14 yesterday and showed the problems with that. We could look at the other dating mechanisms as well. There's assumptions that are being made in these methods that are highly speculative, okay? So what I'm saying is we need to look at other evidences that would argue without assumption for a short age since creation week. And uh, we talked about erosion rates yesterday. I saw some of your eyes glazing over when we spoke about this. So let me just give you two other slides about this that illustrate it this way. These authorities speak about North America, where we live. North America is being denuded by erosion at a rate that could level it in a mere 10 million years. Or to put it another way, at the same rate, 10 North Americas could, could have been eroded since middle Cretaceous time 100 million years ago. So what they're saying, you don't even have to go all the way down to the bottom of the geologic column. You're up closer to the top, relatively speaking. And 10 North Americas could have been eroded. And well, the geologists say, well, that's because uplift is balancing the erosion. Well, then how come all these layers are still there? Do you see the problem? So it doesn't make sense. Look at it this way. This is actually someone writing in a scientific journal back in the 70s. Even if it's accepted that the estimates of the contemporary rate of degradation of land surfaces are several orders too high, to provide an accurate yardstick of erosion in the geological past, there has surely been ample time for the very ancient features preserved in the present landscape to have been eradicated several times over. The survival of these paleoforms, you know, the fossils and geologic column, is in some degree an embarrassment to all of the commonly accepted models of landscape development. And so what you hear here are geologists, they're saying that this really doesn't make sense these models of vast ages, if you just look at things that you really can measure. But instead, they want to talk about, well, the radiometric clocks. You know, it doesn't seem like those things change, and, you know, the decay rates are constant like we talked about yesterday. It doesn't seem to be affected by pressure, gravity, you know, other things. And so it must have been like this for millions and millions of years. But then they have these assumptions about how much of these 
minerals were in the rock to begin with, or in the case of carbon-14, in the fossil itself. With this background, you know, looking at these other geologic clocks, these erosion rates present a problem, but now we want to look actually at the geologic column itself in some detail. We're going to do this in, uh, in a way that kind of uh, brings us to some insights and then steps back, looks at some others, brings us back. So we're going to take you over the same territory from several different perspectives. But uh, I first want you to have a biblical key to understanding geology. Remember, I entitled this talk as dealing with the three angels' messages. And uh, remember, we looked at this earlier. The first angel's message, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him that did what? Made heaven and earth and the sea. And what else? And the fountains of waters. Where is this coming from? Yeah, actually, I hear a number of uh, insights coming out here. This actually is most scholars believe quite clearly. If you look at the context of Revelation, how it was written, it, John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is pointing us back to Exodus chapter 20, and in particular, verse 11. Because there, in the heart of the Ten Commandments, we read, in six days the Lord made what? The heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that in the midst. And he rested on the seventh day, wherefore God blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So, Creation science is at the heart of the Sabbath message. It's at the heart of the law. And so when Ellen White is speaking about the work of Elijah and we look at the times of Elijah, that's why we made this connection. Because in this postmodern influence of anything goes, what difference does it make? Who cares how long it took? I believe in the Bible just like you, but I believe, you know, one day was eons and eons of time. This is totally, as we saw yesterday, contrary to the biblical text as well as to the clear word of prophecy. But now look at these texts together, side by side. Exodus 20, 11, and Revelation 14, 7. And you notice there's a difference, isn't there? In Exodus 20, 11, it speaks about God creating heaven, earth, sea, and all that in them is. But in Revelation 14, it's heaven, earth, sea, and the fountains of waters. Is there any reason why there's a difference in this end time message and the first angel's message? It clearly calls us back to Genesis and the creation. It clearly calls us back to the Ten Commandments. But why not? And all that in them is. Why? And the fountains of waters. Yeah, exactly. Many believe that this is an allusion, a reference back to the first reading of the fountains of waters. Now, some of you have heard of this so-called law of first mention. Uh, it never made particular sense to me. Um, you know, they attach special value to when something was first mentioned in the Bible. Um, of course, there's special value to everything in the Bible. But the context of Exodus 20 and Revelation 14, pointing us back to creation, the immediate connection between creation and the fountains of waters is very clear in Genesis 7 because the first mention of these fountains of waters, other than the presupposition that fountains of waters were under the earth when God divided the waters below and the waters above during creation week, it says here in Genesis 7:11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. You know, a lot of people think of the flood in Noah's day being the result of a great rainstorm. But this is actually not what the Bible teaches. Yes, there was great rain but also the fountains of the great deep were broken up. And so here, a connection is being made in Revelation 14, I believe, with the flood. And not just a flood because of rain, but a global flood that included the fountains of the deep opening up. 
In fact, this term for the flood in Hebrew is mabul. It's a unique phrase. It does not, it's not used to refer to the flooding of the Jordan. It's not referred to, it doesn't refer to local floods. It is this global deluge. And so the evolutionists, and even in Christian circles, people will want us to believe that the flood is just some localized event. First of all, this is totally contrary to the biblical account. There's no way you can say you believe the Bible and say you think the flood was just a little localized thing because it covered the mountains. Okay, even if it was just covering the mountains in, uh, in the Middle East, how high are the mountains there? <laughs> They're very high, actually. Um, in, in Turkey, um, you know, the mountains of Ararat. They covered the mountains. I mean, it w there's no way you can do that with a, a small local flood. It had to be a global deluge. The account is very clear. But the careful Bible student, like I said, sees more than this colossal rainstorm. This is really the key to the geologic column, and it's right in the Bible. Look what Genesis, and then there's something after the rain. I want to mention this too, because right after we start reading about the end of the dominance of the waters in Genesis 7:24, we have Genesis 8:1. And in Genesis 8:1, it says, God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God does what? He makes a wind pass over the earth. And the waters assuaged or subsided. So what I want you to see is that the events of the flood are not just rain coming from heaven. They involve these cataclysmic events of the fountains of the great deep opening up. And then there's post-rain changes on the earth, including this wind that God causes to pass over the earth. The, the, the very mention of this seems to suggest something unusual. It's not like, you know, just there's, you know, the breeze blowing over the face of the earth. So look at how Ellen White describes what happened as the floodwaters receded. She said, as the waters began to subside, the hills and the mountains were surrounded by a vast, turbid sea. Everywhere were strewn the dead bodies of men and beasts. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets 107 and 108. The Lord would not permit these to remain to decompose and pollute the air. Therefore, he made the earth a vast burial ground. Very interesting, huh? A violent wind which was caused to blow for the purpose of drying up the waters, moved them with great force, in some instances, even carrying away the tops of the mountains and heaping up trees, rocks, and earth above the bodies of the dead, the violent action of the waters piling earth and rocks, in some cases, even forming mountains. Does this sound like a violent, cataclysmic, dramatic event? This is, this is after the rain and the fountains of the deep opening up. Well, what about that earlier chapter? Spirit of Prophecy, pages 73 to 76. Speaking of Moses having been on the ark now, the eighth day the heavens gather blackness, begins to thunder. Rain descends. It says this was something they'd never witnessed before. But then as you read on, the storm increased in violence until water seemed to come from heaven like mighty cataracts, like waterfalls coming out of the windows of heaven. That's how the Bible describes it. The boundaries of rivers broke away. The waters rushed into the valleys. The foundations of the great deep were also broken up. So this is all biblical, but Ellen White is giving more illumination. And for those of us who are interested in creation science, we should pay special attention to the clear biblical account. But we have this special help from the spirit of prophecy so that we're not having to conjecture as to just how dramatic this was. Look what she says happens. Jets of water would burst up from the earth with indescribable force, throwing massive rocks hundreds of feet into the air, and then they would bury themselves deep in the earth. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, she says the violence of the storm increased. And there were mingled with the warring of the elements, the wailings of the people who had despised the authority of God. Trees, buildings, rocks, and earth were hurled in every direction. Amid all the warring of the elements, the surging of the waters, and the hurling about of trees and rocks, the ark rode safely. Angels were basically preserving the ark. It was not just a seaworthy vessel. It was divinely protected. As you read this account, um, you realize 
that it was not just a well-built ship. The storm does not abate its fury. The waters increase faster than at first. Some fasten themselves to lofty trees upon the highest points of land, but these trees are torn up by the roots, carried with violence through the air, and appear as though angrily hurled with stones and earth into the swelling, boiling billows. A local flood? Come on. I mean, definitely not in Genesis, clearly not in the writings of the modern prophet. Do you see why, even in our ranks, there are people trying to undermine the spirit of prophecy? You can try to twist the reading of the Bible, and some people, if they're not careful, will let you get away with it. But this is just too plain. It's too plain. So what about the geologic column? If we, if we think about all this, these cataclysmic events, what are we going to expect to see? Does what we see in geology, does it look more like cataclysmic events, things rapidly being buried and covered, or does it look like millions and millions of years of gradual sedimentation? Okay? Here's a diagram of the Grand Canyon area and beyond. And I want you to notice certain things. We're going to kind of come at this from several different perspectives, but but look here, the layers are flat or even with respect to each other. Do you see this, how smooth they are? These layers often extend over hundreds of thousands of square miles. And the question, first question about all this is where is the expected unevenness that you usually see with weathering? So you look at the surface right now. What do you see? You see these big crevices and you know all this ero all these erosional features if this was taking place over millions and millions of years why don't you see in these layers all kinds of erosional features here's a diagram from Ariel Roth's book uh, title is right there origins linking science and scripture and he illustrates what you would expect to see in illustrations A through D, if evolutionists were correct. If you had layering, that layering would be eroded over time, new layers would form, more erosion would occur, more new layers would form. This is what you would see, these disconnected layers with all these erosional features. But instead, you see what we see in E. I mean, look at it. This, this is the junction of two different layers. I mean, it's amazing. Look at this. I mean, it's a perfect flat line of contact. It looks like someone just laid, you know, uh, one layer of cement and then put the next layer on, a little bit different. Now, Dr. Roth has a very interesting picture and then illustration here on his text. He's pointing to different features here in the Grand Canyon. And these red arrows that you see in the illustration represent what the geologists say are gaps in the fossil record. Okay? Well, what are they saying? What are these, how long are these gaps supposedly last for? Now remember, there's no erosion on the surface. And then they say, well, here's a six million year gap, and there's a 14 million year gap, and here's a hundred million year gap. I mean, do you see how how unbelievable it is to believe something like that. How can you have perfectly flat layers and have a hundred million years missing? What happened in the hundred million years? Why are those layers totally flat? And here's another way of looking at it. You see here in the blue are the conventional geologic times assigned to these layers. And this is a hundred million years old, 200 million. And these are the gaps. The black are the, where you'd expect to find layers, but these layers are flat, generally flat with respect to each other. And then you see the present erosional features that are superimposed. So in quote, recent time, we have all this erosion, but for millions and millions of years, we didn't have any? Is this really a reasonable explanation of what we see in the geologic column? And what I would suggest to you is that just to simple, a simple understanding of what's being said in light of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, it, it seems quite obvious, doesn't it, what happened? 
Look here, here's another example of some of the things that are inexplicable as far as conventional mindset. Here you have in the Grand Canyon this hermit shale. There's large cracks, you know, up to over 20 feet in depth, and they're perfectly filled with sandstone from the layer above. How would that happen unless this was rapidly deposited as the earth, you know, maybe a crack forms as things are shifting a bit during these cataclysmic events, either before or after the, the great deposition of waters from above and beneath, and uh, then you have such formations. Now, you say, how can these things form? Some of you are familiar with Dr. Weith, and uh, you've seen his actual modeling of these turbidites. These are, are currents, uh, rapidly flowing uh, movement of water that has debris suspended in them, and these turbidites and other large mass transit, if you will, movement of Earth can occur in cataclysmic events. And it lays down things not only in flat layers, but it organizes things that are in that depositional process. And we're going to show you some about that. But what we know about these type of mass movements, they've been observed today. They've been measured today. We've, uh, some years ago, there was a, um, uh, in the in area of the Grand Banks, uh, a large uh, earth slide came into the ocean and caused one of these uh, large flows. And uh, these move very rapidly, and they deposit uh, a very uniform layer. And this is much of what we see in the, in the geologic column. It looks just like that. And these layers will not mix. If you have a, one that comes down and then one in rapid succession, they won't mix. This next layer lays on above the others, and you see a sequential layering. So uh, Dr. Karen Jensen is up here in front, and uh, she is uh, very well versed in this area, although we have many uh, pictures like this in the CD that if you haven't gotten, we have one for you after the presentation. Uh, Dr. Jensen has also shared with me some of her illustrations of just giving us some perspective on how fast these fossil layers actually form. And uh, as you look at these, these different uh, examples that we see in the geologic column, it defies explanation from the conventional evolutionary mindset. So here's a question, and that is how fast does it take for fossils to form? How fast can they form? And if you look at all these different fossils that we have, um, it's amazing to think about it. This is from the uh, famous Green River fossil formation. Um, if you look at the Green River fossils, and if you want to actually see some, Dr. Jensen, I'm sure, would bring some in at the break. Am I telling you the truth? Yeah. Yeah, she would, she'd be willing to do that. And you can look at these fossils, and there's these fine lines of, uh, that uh, evolutionists say represent you know, yearly lines, they call them varves. And, uh, and you look on these, and then if you look carefully, you can see these yearly line, quote, yearly lines going alongside the fish. And this fish is perfectly preserved with even its scales and eyes intact. Now, how long can a fish lay on the bottom of a body of water and still have its fins and eyes intact. How long do you think this would take? I mean, this is very, very short. Have you actually done some experiments with this, Karen? Okay, yeah, Dr. Buchheim is known for his work on the, the Green River fossils, and he's published in, uh, in scientific journals. In fact, I heard an interesting story about one of his uh, fossils that appeared on the cover of a prominent geology magazine. You always have to have a frame of reference in the picture to know how big, I mean, you don't know how big this fossil fish is, right? So on the front of the cover, he had a penny, 
and he had it upside down. And his reason for that was it said, in God we trust. Uh, and that was his uh, subtle way of uh, speaking about his understanding that this reflected not some process over millions of years, but represented the, uh, uh, an account that was in harmony with the biblical account. But this is a very rapid process of decay for the fish. It's not going to happen. You can't fossilize a fish and have this degree of preservation in a matter of years. It has to be a matter of probably minutes. Okay. Well, what about other things we find in the fossil record? Um, how about trees? Now, trees are more resilient, aren't they? But to have perfectly preserved fossilized wood, how long would that tree have to be? Would it, could it fossilize in millions of years? Some people say, you know, there's trees that were fossilized standing up with, with all kinds of layers, millions of years go, uh, of, of sediment going up, these fossilized forests that you may have uh, heard about, like at Yellowstone. And I say this shows millions and millions of years because you have all these layers of trees. Uh, actually, the, a much better explanation is actually the flood. We, we might be able to talk some about that uh, because we have some models that have actually been observed, like with Mount St. Helens and what happens to trees in the face of uh, cataclysmic events. Um, just to, to, to summarize very briefly, because you have, I'm pretty sure there's slides on your CD about this that we may not be able to see um, in these short presentations. But trees, when they're knocked down by a cataclysmic force, like in a volcano or other severe wind or severe water movement, they're often sheared off, huge trees, um, so that uh, not all their roots are present. They might just have like a root ball or a small portion there at the bottom of the tree. You have no limbs. The limbs are all broken off. And then these trees, if they end up in a body of water, they will set off and settle down upright into the body of water because the lower portion of the tree is heavier. So we actually have this. This has been observed in Spirit Lake following uh, Mount St. Helens uh, eruption. And then as deposition comes into that lake in a cataclysmic process, you can actually have layering in the lake and trees coming down at different layers. And so if you think each layer represents hundreds or thousands of years, then you say, well, here's the fossil forest that grew over millions of years because there's all these trees at different levels and you can count their rings. But um, there's a whole science they call it dendro dendrochronology dendrochronology. It's looking at time based on rings of trees. And uh, they can correlate the growth of these trees at these different levels. They're all growing at the same time. And so there's some fascinating things about this. But the bottom line is these preservations. How about dinosaur bones? Have any of you ever been to Dinosaur National Monument? That's a fascinating place to see. Now, someone told me it's currently closed. You know if that's still true, Karen? Um, but if you, go to, if you went to Dinosaur National Monument or if it reopens, the, the actual the visitor center is actually built into the side of a mountain uh, that has, or at least a geologic formation there, and it cut away is all of these bones of dinosaurs. You walk, you're actually looking at all of these dinosaur bones. It's just like a massive graveyard of all these jumbled bones. How did they all get there? It all speaks of a cataclysmic event, that these bones were washed into the area. And we just read about it, didn't we, in the spirit of prophecy? Perfect explanation for what happened. Karen, what do we, what do we know about the, the degree of preservation of these dinosaur bones? How long could they have, have been out, exposed to the elements, and have that degree of preservation? What would you say? Okay, so Karen is saying. Okay, since it's on tape, what she's saying is that these bones are disarticulated, they're separated from the skeleton. Maybe they could have stayed there for a month, uh, but probably much shorter times were involved in burying these dinosaur bones to have the degree of preservation that we see. 
And so all of these things that we're looking at, whether it's the layers of the geologic column, whether it's the fossils, they all speak to us of what? Rapid burial. They don't speak of millions and millions of years. So we were starting to talk about Mount St. Helens and how this gives us a recent example of how rapidly we can see multiple layers forming. And uh, of course, this is in recent history. What was it, 1980? Mount St. Helens eruption. And uh, Dr. Jensen shared with me this picture. And uh, how many of you can see the fine strata here? Do you see all that? You see this man down here in the red? I mean, this is, you know, what, 20, 30 or more feet that we're looking at, 50 feet as you go all the way to the top. And right here is this exquisite layering that occurred in three hours. Three hours. So if, if someone were just to have showed up here with a con conventional geologic view, and, they were to, and you were to show them this, you would say, how long do you think it took to form all this? But I mean, it's all formed from Mount St. Helens eruption, but this particular portion within three hours. What would they say? You know, you know all these layers. I mean, look at how slow things happen. You know, you look at the Earth, and you see, I mean, this, this is, what, probably millions of years. And uh, in fact, one of the uh, authors, Dr. Austin, who's done a lot of study He's a Christian, not a Seventh-day Adventist. Still works for the Institute for Creation Research, doesn't he, Karen? Um, he's done a lot of study on Mount St. Helens, and he came from an evolutionary perspective early in his career. And he said, you know, the things that you see at Mount St. Helens, the erosion that you see that has occurred there, the, the deposition of layers, I mean, these things, if you're looking at it with a con uh, typical geologic viewpoint, you would say this took millions and millions of years. These are not things that happen in a short time. And the problem is, though, with this, and I say it's a problem for the evolutionary mindset, is Mount St. Helens was not a huge cataclysmic event even in what we can observe in uh, relatively recent Earth history. So imagine what the flood could have done with these vast forces. Do you see how we're not burying our head in the sand to say that we believe in the biblical account? If you really just look objectively at what we see in geology, it seems to speak eloquently to God's inspired account of how things develop. Now, if you want to see something even quicker, many of you know Sean Pittman, Dr. Pittman. Uh, he's a physician and uh, has a very special interest in the area of creation science. He's graciously allowed us to put many of his presentations on the CD that you'll have. This is a photograph he took of uh, layering and erosion. Do you see these layers here? Well, this is on the beach. This did not happen over days, but over hours. You see? So these are just examples of how water, even with relatively weak forces, like on the coast, can give us things that if you didn't see people's feet here, and I showed you this, you might say, well, these are huge cliffs, and I see the layering there, and the you know, the steep drop-offs and all this must have eroded over, you know, many, many years. This just happened as the tide was going out. So, do you feel like you have some feel for what the geologic evidence suggests for something as dramatic as the Grand Canyon? Not only do we have these flat layers, but if you look at it, you see how it's bent. I mean, it looks like something that was laid down very quickly while it was still before it had fossilized or hardened or however you want to describe it, lithified, turned into rock. As the Earth's crust was moving, there are these faults, these clean cuts, if you will, that move the different layers and, and that bend the layers. Do you see that? These folding and moving. It seems to directly correspond to the flood model. And uh, these layers, like we were saying, cover vast areas. The Tapete Sandstone, look at this, flowing over 1,000 miles with boulders. 
And uh, we mentioned something called this stratification of the uh, different layers. If you look at the layers, you find that there's an organization of the layers with the heavier boulders at the bottom and uh, lighter and lighter material at the top. This is what happens in a massive flow event. Uh, it's sometimes called upward fining. And it corresponds to one depositional event, all these huge layers, because you see this very uh, orderly sequence, as is mentioned here, boulders at the base, then sand, then finer sand, silt, and then lime that deposits uh, as well. And so you look at these things, and then what really confuses the geologists is because you can actually have, if this was a depositional event, it's, and, and these flows are coming over, you can have places where one flow actually might be interrupted by another flow. And uh, whereas the evolutionists tell us, well, the Redwall limestone, you know, is uh, 200 million years distant from the Cambrian uh, structure that's described here, and yet they're interbedded, okay? So you have planes of one strata mixing in with others, and you could expect that on turbulent flow conditions where you could see something like this. But you wouldn't see this. How would you find something 200 million years older get in with something that has already been deposited? There's no way to explain it other than God's global flood, right? And so it's very interesting, isn't it, that when that end time call goes out to worship God as the creator, he's not identified as the creator as we read in Exodus 20, verse 11. He's not the one who created the heaven, earth, the sea, and all that in them is. But in Revelation 14, he's the one who created what? The heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. It seems to be saying that in the last day message, there's special need to speak of the God of creation and the God of the flood. And isn't it interesting that the first angel's message prior to speaking of God as creator says what? The hour of his judgment has come. Interesting in light of the flood. So hopefully we've looked at enough of the fossil record, these vast layers, the flat contact lines, and uh, I mean, it's amazing how this fits a flood model, the upward fining. Look at this picture here. Dr. Jensen had this great picture. Look at this. This is a man right here. And this is a lower level of this uh, sandstone layer, and it's a huge boulder. How do these things happen? How can you explain it in an evolutionary model? You can't. It fits perfect. I mean, you, sure, you can give an explanation to it. But simple explanation of the flood seems to eloquently describe exactly what we see in the geologic column. And uh, many of you know something else about the Cambrian layers. These are the, uh, some of the very earliest layers in the geologic column. And uh, these have some of these very similar uh, catastrophic relationships uh, that seem to point to this very same depositional event. So no erosion, flat layering, deep folds and faults like we've seen, all of this, and then the well-preserved fossils. And I want to just mention one other thing to you about the fossils that I think is especially relevant. Because um, you're looking at these very complex structures that we were just showing you there. Uh, Dr. Jensen graciously provided these as well. But this is what's called the Cambrian explosion by the evolutionists. They can't explain how all these varied life forms are on these so-called ancient layers. Where did they come from? Where do you have these complex structures? These are not, you know, single-celled organisms. 
these have, you know, eyes and legs, and they show reproductive function and growth and, and mouths. So what better explains these structures are that they were on the bottom of the ocean and the first buried. Do you see? So all of these things, all these pieces of evidence, instead of saying like, well, you know, I better not let anyone know I believe in creation because it, you know, it doesn't make any sense and I just have to accept it by faith. There's plenty of evidence to support God's perspective on creation, especially when put in the context of the flood. Just a few other remarkable uh, slides that uh, Dr. Jensen uh, shared for our benefit today. What do you see here in this uh, fossilized fish? Yeah, another fish in its belly. Just apparently been swallowed, has not had time to be digested. And uh, another remarkable one. Look at this. What's going on here? Yeah, there's a fish in the act of swallowing another fish. How long do you think this took to occur? Uh, you know, we realize that to be. I, I was watching a uh, a film, a nature film, with my children, and uh, it was about dinosaurs and things. It was not from a Christian perspective, but it was really. I mean, we realized how ridiculous it was because they they say, well, how did this fossil, you know, end up here? And obviously, it it uh, died. And then over many ages, you know, it was buried. And you see this perfectly, you know, perfectly formed, you know, large uh, fish creature. And, uh, and you see things like, there's no way that even just having the bones together in a structure is not going to happen on the bottom of the ocean unless it was d rapidly, very rapidly covered up. And so we see things like this. And when you see these things, instead of uh, the fossils confusing us about our origins, the fossils provide evidence not of evolution. They, pervert, they provide evidence of what? God's account of creation and the flood. You have a whole uh, presentation on things that deal with the geologic record from Dr. Pittman. But as we close this segment, I want to tell you that uh, even if we didn't have the evidence from geology that we have, there's other compelling evidences in these creatures that are fossilized as well as what we see around us today. And another very powerful argument that we're going to look at in our next hour is what's sometimes called the argument from design. Uh, some of you know the name of Michael Behe. Uh, Dr. Behe wrote the book, Darwin's Black Box. Uh, we're going to look at uh, some of his insights and the insights of others that say, you know what? Even it, there, there's so many different lines of evidence, is the point, that points to a recent creation and a recent formation of the fossil record. Before we close this segment in the last two minutes, I just want to mention a couple of other things to you. Be especially aware of uh, the problems with people who say there's geologic evidence of many long ages. Uh, I already told you about the varves, these layerings. There's uh, a lot of misinformation about layerings of ice. Uh, there's a whole presentation on the CD of showing you how uh, layers of ice that were said to be hundreds, thousands of years old have actually been conclusively demonstrated to be uh, just decades old. And uh, there's a whole uh, it's kind of a case study of a lost squadron during World War II that was found buried beneath what many people thought was thousands or tens of thousands of feet of ice because of the different layers, which they said each represented a year. Simply not true. They tell you about uh, coral reefs, and the coral reefs prove that the Earth is tens of thousands of years old. Dr. Roth, Adventist uh, uh, biologist, has studied these very carefully and has shown that these things could have very easily occurred in uh, just since the 
the time of creation from a biblical time span. So, yeah, there's other things that we could have talked about, but the point is compelling evidence in the world of geology that the Earth is only about 6,000 years beyond the time of creation. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we've turned our attention again to your word and to modern science. And we see that instead of the rocks confusing us, they seem to cry out testifying to the truth of your word, especially when we accept it as it reads, a literal 24-hour day creation over six days. As we read about a global flood, these things resonate with intelligent minds as we look at the evidence. Please continue to help us as we seek to better understand these things and communicate them to, world, to a world that so needs to see that you are a God of truth and order and design, as well as a God of love who didn't create by death over millions and millions of years. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.